Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where I sporadically and ultimately always pending a crumbling democracy and worldwide pandemic, interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. So I have not released a new episode in about eight months. I actually recorded this episode last February, but with another surge of COVID headed our way and with the holidays, which always feel extra lonely when you've lost someone you love, it felt like the right time to put the pedal to the dead mom metal and let the horses run wild. My guest this episode is Mary Matthews. Mary lost her mother in January 2020 to esophageal cancer. And if you're following along at home, January 2020 was about three months before the COVID pandemic hit. Mary's an illustrator and before the pandemic worked as the creative director for the U.S. labor movement. She became a mom in her early 20s and I don't know much about that time, uh, only through like a handful of family photographs that I've seen. We did not have a lot of money, so we didn't have a lot of photos. And it's interesting to be in a world now where everything is so documented so easily. And back then you either had a camera or didn't. And by the time you're the third kid, like photos are like slim. <laughs> like. My brother, I mean, I could fill a museum with the amount of like photos of my brother, but uh, not so much. I do know like she was one of seven kids, grew up in a very like strict Irish Catholic family. My grandmother was uh, actually Canadian, French Canadian, just like very hardcore, like <laughs> hardcore French Canadian. <laughs> Like, you know, like, like get up at 5 a.m. and like scrape the house, like that kind of, whatever that means. Like, just like very. Oh, I see it. Lot, yeah, a lot of chores. And my mom was the second child, the first girl. So, you know, a lot of housework and responsibilities fell on her. And she was also, you know, eventually the first to leave home, uh, I think, as a result, like to get the hell out of there, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And my grandmother ended up living with us, like when I was in middle school. Uh, through, she died when I was in high school. And so I saw a front row, I had a front row seat to their relationship too, which um, I, I think more about now than yeah. I ever did in the moment, you know. My grandmother was incredibly critical to, to all of us, uh, not just my mom, but like, you know, she'd say things to me like, why don't you have your friend Marie come over more? Why can't you be more like Marie? And like, by the way, Marie never spoke. Yeah. Like she was like <laughs> the shyest most boring person on the planet, you know, but like my grandmother was like loved Marie because Marie didn't say anything. Um, so I saw them, you know, butt heads, you know, I saw, you know, that nothing was ever good enough for my grandmother to, with my mom. And my mom was in a tough spot. Her marriage didn't work out. She had these kids like, you know, and my grandmother lived with us because her apartment she was in, had gone condo or whatever. So she wasn't going to buy it. So, and you know, she had seven kids. So she had seven offers of where to live and she chose our offer, which I think my mom was like, unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like be careful what you offer. Right. Yeah. yeah. My, my kind of early memories um, are of 
really like uh, leaving. My parents split up very early in my life. I was six. Kind of the defining moment of like my memories of her and of childhood were leaving my dad. He was a drinker and they were having problems. And um, she, you know, asked him to get help and he didn't. And so um, she told me we were going to Disneyland for the weekend. And as we were packing the car with like pots and pans and, uh, you know, all of our belongings. Like, and as an impatient six-year-old, I was like, God, it's like we're moving or what something. What ride is this? And my, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my older brother and his sister both knew they were 12 and 14. Um, so she had told them what was going on, but they all kind of like a record scratch moment. And so then she said, you know, we are moving. Um, and we got in the car and, you know, the jig was up. I mean, I think she was like, doing the Disneyland thing as to like have a positive start to a very uncertain future. So I give her credit for still going to Disneyland. You know, we went to like the happiest place on earth at the worst possible uh, time of our lives. <laughs> and then we drove across country from California, San Diego to uh, Connecticut. Oh, wow. Where my, where my aunt lived and uh, lived with her for a little bit and got our own place. And then I grew up um, in Connecticut Yeah, for the most part. Did you still stay in contact with your dad? Um, you know, at first, you know, um, he called a lot and was like trying to negotiate um, with her. Mm -hmm. You know, he would call occasionally. We had a very estranged relationship. He visited maybe three times in my life. One was soon after they first broke up. And then he came to my sister's high school graduation and he came to my graduation and then um, he died the fall after my high school graduation. Uh, so I was a freshman in college when he died. Mm -hmm. I think what was sad for me about his death was the death of possibility. You know, there was always a little hope that maybe we could have something or know each other better or, you know, but that was never you know, going to happen. And he had a very secret life. Like, it turns out he had relationships with men. We were told he was dying of cancer. He was HIV positive, died of AIDS. And this was 1991. I mean, the stigma was still very heavy, yeah. and especially in my Irish Catholic family. After you left your dad and moved to Connecticut, tell me about that space of time settling into a new life and living with your aunt for a bit. Tell me about that time. Yeah. So my aunt was married and had two sons who were around my age. So it was fun. It was, a, we lived in a beach community, always going to the beach and, you know, she was searching for a job. It was incredibly stressful. I'm sure she never showed that to us. A lot of people had summer homes there. So they would rent their summer home out in the winter our first house was like for six months uh, in a summer home, which meant like not insulated. My mom slept on the couch. My sister and I shared a room. My brother was in the attic, like under an electric blanket the whole time. I mean, but it was fun. Like, mm -hmm. that's the thing about her is like, it was an adventure. Like, like the this infamous drive across country when we moved to Connecticut, you know, we're in this packed Buick. You know, she made it fun. She made it like we weren't leaving one life we were going to a new one mm -hmm. another one she must have been very stressed 
she smoked a lot of cigarettes back then. <laughs> a lot of cigarettes. Yeah. And then we found like a regular rental, great house in the same neighborhood. Landlord lived next door, great family. Their kids were around my age too, whole neighborhood of kids. And we ended up living there all through my high school years. You know, we'd go to the beach a lot together on the weekends. I remember going to the mall a lot on Friday nights. And there are all these things, like I'm very aware. I mean, obviously like being an adult now, having a family, being aware of finances, like there are all these tricks she did. I had no idea they were tricks, like breakfast for dinner. Like that's a way to feed a lot of people without spending a lot of money, you know, like yeah. the Taco Bell. I was like, we are at a fancy meal out in the town. <laughs> at together. a cantina. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I on vacation? <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. It was like a Mexican pizza. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We would um, spend a lot of time watching television together. Yeah. And she worked for Amtrak for like 20 plus years. Mm. And she got bumped around to a lot of different jobs. She sold tickets sometimes. She was a lot of secretarial clerk jobs. So she had one job where she was like, uh, it was like the luggage department in Providence, which was like an hour away. So she had like drive an hour each way. And it was, it was a night job. My grandmother was there, but you know, she was like asleep by seven. So a lot of like home alone watching television, but She'd always call me every night, like, you know, we talk when she was mm-hmm. at work. Um, but yeah, a lot of television together. Uh, we loved like Matt Houston and a lot of 80s, like solid Dallas. Yeah. And she'd always fall asleep on the couch because she was like exhausted, mm-hmm. understandably. And I'd always be so annoyed. I'd be like, just go to bed. <laughs> like, you're tired. Like, no, no, I'm just closing my eyes. I'm just closing my eyes for a minute. So she never dated, you know, my parents never kind of officially divorced. I mean, there, I guess there were papers eventually, but it was that like seven years of not living together thing where I guess legally means you're not married anymore. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know the particulars of 1970s, 80s marriage and divorce, <laughs> but um, I was very like, she didn't want to be like dating people and not have it work out. But also, I, I don't even know when she would have, honestly, between working and sleeping on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when there was, you know. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, my sister was in college. Uh, she went to Connecticut College. She was on the basketball team. We would go to her games. And her college roommate, who was also on the team, her father, who was going through a divorce at the time, met my mother. And they ended up together and now they're married. So she married like the year after I would say my freshman year of college, she married my sister's college roommate's father. Wow. Yeah. And and they were together for 20 plus years Mm -hmm. uh, until she died. Yeah. Yeah. I was a junior in college and I had been in a relationship with my best friend. Neither of us had been with a woman before. This happened right before I went on a like semester abroad. Mm-hmm. So we got together like the summer before. It was a secret, nobody knew. And then we were apart for three months. When I came home at the airport, she was there and we hugged and my mom was there too. And the hug was like a little too long. <laughs> and uh, 
And then my mom like swept me away and we went like, you know, I was like, oh, can I just have like a night in Boston with my friends? Or like, you know, nope. Like we went home and like the next day she sat me down and she's like, are you and Vivian more than friends? I just remember the moment so clearly of like, I'm either going to say yes and this is not, this is going to blow up or I'm going to say no and I'm going to have to lie to her for the rest of my life. Like I, I never saw any in between. Mm-hmm. It was going to be okay. I'll say no. And then I'm just going to hide being gay forever or until she dies. So I said yes. And, uh, but that we were figuring out, we weren't sure what was going on. So, you know, that was very hard for her and she's very religious. Yeah. It was a terrible time. Ended up kind of had an ultimatum about school that, you know, I, if I, didn't have this relationship, I could return to school, but if I continued with it, I would not be able to. And, um, or I could continue the relationship. Like that was my own business, but I wasn't going to be able to go to this incredibly (laughs) liberal, uh, you know, pot smoking theater, gay loving college in Boston. So shout out Emerson. Shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that, so I took the third option where I left. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to go to school and I'm also not going to be home going to community college and I'm just going to leave. So I moved to Boston, got a bunch of jobs. Yeah. And we just like did not talk for a while. There was one Christmas I was working in a movie theater and I had to work on Christmas. And so she and my uh, stepfather came up and, you know, had dinners. We cooked dinner at my house or apartment and then, you know, spent like kind of the day together. And there was a Mother's Day. I remember she came to see me on Mother's Day. And then I was in therapy and she, you know, was asking me about how that was going, which was, you know, I think a big step for her. Like Mm -hmm. talking about feelings and being emotionally available, like that was definitely not her jam, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a product of, you know, like a war baby and lived in this like, you know, very buttoned up family. And we've had family reunions with her brothers and sisters, like through the years. Um, and like taking a family photo is ridiculous. Like everyone looks like they like work together at like a factory or something. Like there's <laughs> even like those people are like more like, like, bonded than yeah. these like no one's putting an arm around each other like i mean it's like it's very weird very weird i'm trying to think of like when it got better was it before you got married and had a kid well that's the kind of like double helix loop around the person i married is was my first girlfriend it's vivian it's vivian wow. yeah yeah so we remained friends through the years oh. and um you know it's funny i tell people that and there's always like two different looks in their people's eyes they're like thinking of their first girlfriend and being like hell no like no way ever or like hmm, i wonder you know like it's very funny yeah she married someone else i married someone else in between and we you know remained in touch and it just kind of happened so yeah yeah and i think ultimately like i think made my mom happy like i think she um i was married to someone else I was living in New York and we were living together and my ex-wife wanted a very big wedding. And so, you know, I was like, all right, I have to like invite everybody. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I was very mixed about it. I was like, I want her there, but also I 
don't want to look at her discomfort the yeah. whole time. You know, this was back in 2009 and 10. So it was before um, national uh, gay marriage. Mm -hmm. So um, we had to get married in Connecticut. And then we had like a wedding in Pennsylvania, which where it wasn't legally recognized. Anyway, she did end up coming and she said she was glad she came and yeah, I mean, she came around like she was never going to be as comfortable with it and like easygoing with it as she was with my brothers and sister and their marriages. Mm -hmm. And that's just I had to like stop wanting that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so do you feel like when you got back together with Vivian, like that made your relationship with your mom get slightly better, like just having known this person or been aware of this person for so long? Well, you know, it's funny. I think like one of her arguments that we she had about same sex couples was that they don't last, you know, that that it's it's not you can't sustain that type of relationship. And, and that's why, it, you know, it, it works with straight people and not with gay people, you know, or they have multiple partners, you know, whatever. I'm only going to admit this to you and the entire internet, but <laughs> a, a, a sense of like, you know, yeah, like it was real. Like, mm -hmm. like it, it was what you have with whoever you're with or what we're like, it's the same. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not only is it the same, it's in a way, I think, you know, to go through a lot of life without someone and to meet up again to finally have the relationship you knew you could have. Yeah. Uh, but just, you could not have had it when you were 20. Um, so yeah, I think she was, I think she was pleased and surprised. And certainly when she got sick, we all rallied and were, you know, a part of her care and support. And she definitely saw all of that partnership and love from Vivian and mm -hmm. who she was, you know. So it was like March of 2017 and my sister called me and my sister and I, you know, talk on the phone occasionally, but like, you know, we don't, we text more. And I saw the call and it was in the middle of the day. So I knew she was at work and I was like, this isn't going to be good news. <laughs> I just had kind of a pit in my stomach and mm -hmm. I answered the phone and so my Mom and stepfather own a rock and mineral business. Uh, they sell fossils, rocks and minerals, wow. um, you know, at, at rock and mineral shows around the country. They travel together quite a bit. And so uh, she was traveling and they were on the road. They, they came home and she was terribly sick. She had like flu symptoms and fever. The fever just would not stop. And she ended up going to the ER. She, she, my sister just called to check up on her. Hey, are you home from your trip? And she's like, well, I'm in the hospital. They admitted me. I have pneumonia. There were like, you know, a lot of issues. And then um, my sister's voice cracked. <laughs> and she said, uh, you know, she had a, uh, some kind of like lump cyst, like some kind of object was in her esophagus. Mm -hmm. And it was being, um, you know, uh, whatever, like looked at and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever they call it, you cut it out, biopsy to whatever. Yeah. And 
So it turns out my mom had been having symptoms for a while, but they were on the road and, you know, doing their thing. And um, so the test came back and there was, uh, you know, those small Coke cans, like the smaller ones. Yes. Uh, there was a tumor the size of that Coke can in her esophagus. So she was, I mean, by the time that she got to the hospital, she had been like for two weeks not being able to eat food. She was drinking insurance very slowly. Like, you know, she knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think was just obviously waiting to get home to her doctor to address it. But um, yeah, so it was like a real like... When I showed up to the hospital, um, I got on a plane, you know, a few days later. You know, she already had a feeding tube in, like they were training us on how to use it and what to do. And I, you know, I didn't have a plan to stay there. I just uh, was in the hospital room watching my stepdad kind of learn how to clear the tube and do stuff. And, you know, he's an older guy, he's Mm -hmm. in his, you know, late seventies maybe even 80s, early 80s at this point. Um, As soon as I saw how he was kind of doing this, I was like, okay, we're going to need to, like, all do this. My sister's a nurse, thank God. (laughs) So I felt like she spoke the language. She's also like a ball buster, so she, like, it just knows how to advocate, knows when people aren't getting what they need, uh, when they need us. So she really led the way. She lives uh, about a little over an hour from my mom's house. So um, we kind of, between my stepdad, my sister and I kind of managed her treatment. So then she went into like months of chemotherapy and um, radiation to shrink the tumor. And um you know, we read a lot of articles and, you know, they, it's so interesting just like how TV lies, like all these like medical shows, you know, where they come in and say, you have this long to live and you're at this stage. Like it was like ridiculous. Like, you couldn't get someone to tell us what stage it was, you know, like you couldn't get yeah. anyone to say the words out loud. So this was March, 2017. My stepfather is a staunch conservative Republican. I had had a very tough time with the results of the election, the idea of living with them and Fox News and those conversations. You know, it was like going into the belly of the beast big time. But also Mm -hmm. it was like putting all of that aside, you know, like the mission totally took over everything. And it was like all we talked about and all we cared about and what we were very much focused on. And ultimately... The radiation worked. It shrunk the tumor down to like the size of like a small gumball. And, you know, everything we read about this is you really are like buying time. Like she's not going to be cancer free. She lives with cancer. Plenty of people live with cancer for a long time. The odds for esophageal cancer, the size of her tumor, it, I mean, it didn't spread anywhere else. It was very localized, but it was too big and and the radiation had like done so much damage they couldn't cut it out the only option was to cut the esophagus and then take your stomach and stretch your stomach up to your neck which sounds like a horror movie so she wasn't into that at all yeah so then she was kind of back to life i came back i I mean i have i had a job where i traveled for work i was like a field producer so i could live in connecticut and travel where i needed to go from there and back and forth 
and my job was very flexible about that and uh, supportive. And of course, Vivian and our son, you know, they were, it was a lot of time apart, um, but, you know, they were very, they understood. And um, it's, it's just interesting. Like, you just do it. Like, you know, like when you're faced with like whatever you have to do, like we had to pour food cans into bags and there was a pump and, you know, if she had to go to the bathroom, you had to unhook the pump and then flush it out again and then put, you know, like there was a lot, a lot of stuff, you know, but you just do it in a family that doesn't say everything. These acts of service said, yeah, they said, they said everything, you know? Yeah. So she kind of gained back, you know, her energy and was able to do more. And, um, you know, I mean, she was never going to be the same, you know, which I think was, you know, something she realized, like, I keep waiting to be like I was, and I'm not, you know, I should also mention, and it's funny because the cancer is such a focus. Oh God, let's see, 2014, 15, maybe she was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, but it was not like the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's. Like it was like it had very different symptoms. Like she didn't have tremors, um, but she had a lot of like tripping, losing balance. There were a few falls. So with radiation, the body can only take so much. So like she's going to live with this gumball and it's, you know, eventually going to get bigger or break through to from your esophagus to your windpipe or, you know, whatever. That time period, the Parkinson's got like worse. She couldn't stand for very long. Like it was, it was a matter of like kind of going from chair to chair. And since they ran their own business, uh, you know, from home and they weren't traveling, so then my stepfather would have to go and do these shows on his own. So that's when I would go back um, and be with her. So he had like a big show the following year in February. He'd be gone for like three weeks or something. So I would go back for those three weeks. Just like she couldn't, she could have been alone. I know she thought she could have been alone, but it was just like the risks were, you know, and they have that like old house, you know, from like the 1800s or whatever and like rickety staircase. I mean, like, you know, don't even get me going about the staircase, you know, but I was like, just yeah it was like a house of cards you know so mm -hmm. yeah so i would go back i think the following winter i went back for the times that howard was away it's hard to remember now but like that following summer maybe or fall you know it started to you know feel larger again i would visit like uh anytime i had work on the east coast i would go and visit for like a weekend I shared more of my work with her, kind of opened up my life to her more about what I was doing. And I appreciated that she, you know, that we talked about that stuff. When she was uh, in treatment, you know, we would have a real routine, you know, I mean, watch the local news from five to six and make fun of the local news, you know, and how ridiculous it is. And um, watch Jeopardy, Jeopardy always at seven. And, you know, when I moved in with them for that time period they were just watching like cable tv they didn't have apple tv they didn't have netflix like they were not they had no idea what was going on and i i mean i felt bad for them they were like just stuck in this loop of like storage wars episodes and i was like got them the apple tv got them the netflix and it just blew it just changed their lives you know like and then we had all these shows again you know like in the way that we watched together when i was a kid we had this language of shows together. Like, guess what? Dynasty is back. <laughs> yeah. 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 
We watched, uh, she loved the crown. Uh, Breaking bad was the last show. We tried to get to the end <laughs> to the point where we were in like the last days of her life. We were in the hospital, like cramming, like watching breaking bad together, like trying to get this done. <laughs> Uh, I was actually, I'm working on a piece of writing about it called The Shows Must Go On, because a lot of the shows that we watch together now have new seasons that she's not here for. So um, it's kind of interesting to kind of watch that now. Oh, she loved Homeland. Anything with like a spy element, you know, like loved the intrigue. And I didn't know this, I found out in my time with her that she had always wanted to be like a spy. Like she was very into like those kinds of novels as a kid and she was like looking into it and um, ended up being too afraid of getting hurt or killed to pursue it, which, you know, risk averse, the, the yeah. risk averse spy maybe isn't the best spy. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good sitcom though. <laughs> to explain the concept of Netflix was the funniest thing because her, you know, it's like analog cable mind. So my brother was visiting and we set it up and she was like, what do we watch? And I was like, well, you know, a lot of times they'll have like top 10 most popular going on or you'll, you know, a friend will recommend something. So it's kind of like a word or mouth, word of mouth type of thing. And she's like, well, let's just look at the titles. So I was like, mom, there's like 25,000 things on here. And she's like, well, let's so my brother like wheeled up like a rocking chair to the TV and like literally read each title, like starting at A of what was on Netflix wow and and then and then she's like so what's that about you know and he'd be like i was like <laughs> so i joked with him now sometimes i'll just text him out of the blue i'm like remember when you read netflix to mom like yeah <laughs> like a book yeah, yeah so anyway once she got the ha hang of it um yeah she loved it so after her tumor shrank and then it came back so then i was kind of always there in the in the yeah i was there maybe for like a month and then she had um, treatment again. It was palliative chemo. So there's no more radiation. You can only take so much physically. So she had used up her, you know, radiation card. Part of the hard part of esophageal cancer too is, uh, you know, when you have radiation, it's literally, you know, uh, just like smashing the tumor. And so you have a lot of mucus that comes up you know, your muscles are like just devastated too, right? Because radiation kills the good cells and the bad cells. So you have nothing to like, you know, so we would get this machine, this machine and it has like a wand on it and it's, a, it's essentially a vacuum and it just like sucks it out for you, you know? And uh, that sound, you know, uh, I think like I never want to hear that sound again, you know. So then she had the chemo again, and this was now around Christmas time of 2019. I was there in early December for like a week just to spend time together. And by that time, she wasn't able to swallow again. And they all they could do is put a stent in to open the throat. And she had that surgery right after Christmas. That was like the first time like she had real, real pain where it just like was very hard to just, you know, be like hard to swallow, hard to talk or, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the decline. She just stopped eating, you know, 
because it just hurt too much. And and by this time, I mean, God, I don't even know. She weighed nothing. I mean, so I went home for Christmas and New Year's. And soon after that, like my sister called and said that she had fainted and my stepfather could not wake her up. And so he called uh, the ambulance and she went to the hospital. Yeah, they ended up admitting her. Her oxygen levels were just low. I went a few days after, or like maybe the next day, and then we were there together. I stayed with my sister. She was in the hospital like for a week and a half, trying to get her oxygen levels up. And it was getting better. And she was just very wanted to go home. And our brother was in Japan through this whole experience too, like years of illness. I mean, I thought she was going to die like a hundred times. Like there were like a hundred times of like, this is it, or is this it, or, you know. So it's very hard like to, for him, you know, to say, I, I don't know, you know, um, she's bounced back many times. Should you come? Yes. But also, I don't know, like, you know. So we kind of went back and forth on that. And um, uh, he was still deciding what to do. We were able to get her home. We had to get like a bed and like all this, all these pieces of equipment. And, you know, they discharged her on a Saturday, got her home, set her up in the bed. And she's like, I just cannot catch my breath. Like, I just cannot. And we weren't able to get, we had a visiting nurse come. It was a Saturday. We couldn't get an oxygen tank at home until Sunday. And she just was like, I just cannot breathe, you know? So we went back to the hospital that night. And then she was there for maybe another four days or so. Uh, and then she died. Uh, my brother wow. was able to fly and uh, he landed and we were there together with her. And yeah, so he made it. That was a big stressor of like, you know, is he going to be able to get there? You know, so through that experience at the hospital, I was just so shocked by the rapid decline. Someone is there and then just sleeping all day and night and just not there anymore. I mean, I'm grateful for it, but man, not good. Not, not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we had this, you know, funeral to plan together, which was actually like kind of fun. <laughs> you know, it was the four of us, my brother, sister, and stepdad. And each day we had like an errand or a task that was related to like, pulling this all together so we had to like find a burial plot like so we were like shopping for a grave in all these different graveyards in the town that we grew up in you're like seeing the names everyone you grew up with like their grandparents and their parents i mean there's something like very beautiful about it the person you buy the plot from was like my gym teacher in high school, you know? So like mm. have that conversation first, like, Hey, what's up? And like, how are you? And what, how you, you know, like, what, you know, whatever. So you have this kind of like rapport built in already. Yeah, like they knew her, like you're trying to work an angle to get like, you know, 10% off. You know? <laughs> it's a whole thing. But anyway. Um, yeah. But it sounds like it is more personal than I'm sure a lot of people's experience with like talking to strangers and doing these very sentimental personal things with people who kind of just see you as another number. Yeah, for sure. 
anyway, we went to like five different spots. We finally, we went to uh, one of the oldest graveyards in the town, you know, and this is uh, like the town I grew up in was, uh, was one of the earliest towns settled in Connecticut. So there's a lot of history there. It ended up being like the most beautiful graveyard in town. And, you know, it's like in the neighborhood that we always all wanted to live in, like in the richest part mm -hmm. of town, you know, so the joke was like, oh, she finally got to live in the neighborhood she wanted to. <laughs> Forever. And it's funny because I made that joke to a friend and she's like, we made that same joke about my grandmother there. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I guess this is like what we all do. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful view of the water and, you know, it's just, it's nice. It's really nice. Uh, the funeral was um, at the church that we had all grown up in. When I walked in, it was just not what I remembered. When I was growing up, there it was a very dark church and like carpeting and like you know just and it was so bright you know I walked in and it was like you like dim it a little bit in here like it was like very bright <laughs> and I just I, I was so I don't know what happened I was just like obsessed with how bright it was and I kept mentioning it to everybody who showed up like isn't it so bright in here like I just could not let it go I don't know why but we had collaborated on her eulogy I ended up giving it my sister did a reading and my brother did a reading and um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Cinema Paradiso. Well, at the end of that movie, this guy returns to the town that he grew up in, in Italy. And his favorite movie theater is being torn down. And so everyone in the town goes to watch it being torn down. So it's a very small village. And he looks around and he sees all the faces mm -hmm. of like everyone he grew up with. Oh, God, sorry. And uh, a lot of those faces were there, you know. It was good. I mean, I actually, I had, like, <laughs> many of my friends from New York came, and, like, there were more Jewish people at this Catholic funeral than had ever been probably in that church. You know, it was pretty funny. So that was the funeral. It was, it, it went off well, and, yeah, I think she would have liked it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I cannot wait for the nap after this. Yeah. It'll be so <laughs> good. Be good so good. Terms of Endearment is a 1983 family dramedy adapted from a 1973 book of the same name. The film was written and directed by James L. Brooks, the creator of shows like The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda and Taxi, and longtime writer on The Simpsons and The Tracy Ullman Show. The film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won five of them. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor. And this film delivered one of the greatest character names of all time, Flap Horton. In short, this film is a cultural touchstone for many. I consider it like the mother of all dead mom movies. Terms of Endearment spans 30 years of the complicated relationship between a widowed mother and her daughter. Aurora, the mother, is played by Shirley MacLaine, and Emma, the daughter, is played by Deborah Winger. A constant in Aurora and Emma's relationship is Aurora's somewhat controlling nature of her own daughter. What's wrong with you? I got some good news. I'm unofficially pregnant. I mean, we haven't gotten the test back yet, but you know me, I'm never late. Well, now I don't understand. Um, if you're not happy for me, I'm gonna get so mad if you're not happy. <laughs> Why 
should I? Why should I be happy about being a grandmother? Despite Aurora's disapproval of him, Emma marries Flap Horton. God, that name never gets old. Emma and Flap move away, and they have three kids together. Between the the mother and the children, or the mother and the daughter, were there any parallels that you found in your own relationship as well? <laughs> you know, especially with the gay thing, you know, facing the reality that maybe I was not the daughter she wanted. Or, you know, she certainly didn't want that for me, you know. And there's a lot of that in terms of endearment with Emma and her mom is like what her mom wants for her, what her mom thinks is best for her. Being emotionally removed. You know, I used to call my mom the problem solver, you know, because that, that was like, and I think something that I got from her, I think my siblings have it too. If something is wrong, if you are upset or sad, you know, how do we solve this? You know, what, like, how do we solve the problem? And, you know, that's not how life is, you know, like there are just problems sometimes and you have to accept that. And, you know, that was their relationship in the movie. Like she was always trying to, you know, like tuck in your shirt and stand up straight and all in your best interest, but still feels like criticism or like negative. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> this is a good example. It's kind of like the movie. My mom is a big reader. And I, I don't read that much. And she said, you know, do you read? And I said, no, not really. I mean, I like read articles and like news and things. And she goes, tisk tisk. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said to her, I do other things. Does that count? You know, and then could like point to like, you know, documentaries I've made and, you know, five years of drawings I've done and like, you know, all mm -hmm. the other things I'm doing. Yeah, I'm not reading, but I'm not not doing something right. I think that was like a moment of like understanding between us, you know, like I'm not doing the thing you like to do that you think is good and good for you, you know, but I am doing all this other stuff. So also there's a scene in the movie where they hug each other goodbye. Uh, she's moving away. You know, she has a moment of revelation, like when they hug, like it's the first time that Emma pulls away first, you know, like, Anytime she's hugged her mom before. So her mom was like hanging on to her, you know, which I relate to. Too. <laughs> oh, mom, that's the first time I stopped hugging first. I like that. Aurora and Emma remain close in their dysfunctional sort of way. And when Emma and Flap start to have marital troubles, Emma leans on Aurora more and more. Also fun to point out, Aurora dates a retired astronaut named Garrett Breedlove. Seriously, incredible names here. Big spoiler, but the massive climax in the film is when Emma, a mother herself, gets cancer and it becomes terminal. Her mom is by her side the whole time. I saw it when I was 10, which probably was inappropriate, <laughs> realizing now. <laughs> and there's a scene where, you know, she's sick and she says goodbye to her kids. Her youngest kid in particular is just like, you know, bawling and heaving and, you know. And I remember watching that scene like as a 10 year old and be like dreading that moment, knowing it was out there for me. Mm -hmm. And that even if I was going to be 46, 47 years old, I was still going to feel like that, you know, eight year old kid. 
in that moment. And I have to say, like, when she died, like, I, like, very much was in that moment. Like, I've thought about that scene and, uh, like, kind of watched it happen. The moment was here. And it really was, like, as bad as it looked in that movie, you know? And in a few years, when I haven't been around to be on your tail about something or irritating you, you're going to remember. You're going to remember that time that I bought you the baseball glove when you thought we were too broke, you know? Or when I, I read you those stories. Or when I, I let you goof off instead of mowing the lawn. Lots of things like that. And you're going to realize that you love me. Give me a kiss. I was so scared, but I think it went really well, don't you? In a way, you know, I grappled with having kids myself. The idea that you, anyone would have to go through that as a parent or a kid, like, it's like one of the ways to avoid being a parent on top of all the other reasons, like, to not be a parent. <laughs> that scene, like, lives with me, like, forever, probably. As Emma is dying, her final act of love is trusting her mom to take care of her kids. All is forgiven and everything is understood. Next week, I'll be uploading for my Patreons a segment that Mary and I did on Naya Rivera and Glee and how that tied into Mary's grieving. Your mom passed away like a month and a half, two months before we went into lockdown. How has like the the universal grieving that a lot of people are going through, like so many people have lost their parents, spouses, siblings to this. Let, let's talk about like the COVID pandemic aspect of, of this larger thing that is going on during your grief. So when COVID hit, I, w I was working for a transit union um, that represents like bus drivers, um, conductors, subway conductors all over the United States, a huge membership in New York. And that mm -hmm. was one of the biggest hit groups of people in the beginning. A lot of my work was doing these like updates, uh, video updates about what's going on. How are we getting PPE to people? You know, what's the death count, the sick count? You know, I mean, we were lobbying, you know, the governor and mayor to get masks worn by workers. And they were saying, no, you can't do it because you're going to scare the public. Like, I mean, these are just like, I mean, it seems like a thousand years ago now, but like, yeah. you know, these like huge battles for like the smallest, like paper thin wall of, you know, like you know, resistance. The headquarters is on the East Coast. So I was working East Coast hours and West Coast hours. I mean, it was all consuming, but in a way, like, you know, it took me out of it. Like I wasn't thinking about my mom and dealing with that. And it just was this kind of distraction and this higher calling, you know, of like just trying to help in any way, you know, to, to make an impact and help people. Um, and to like, just have people dying every day First of all, I mean, instantly it made me grateful that my mom did not have to live through this. Like the anxiety of, you know, being in a hospital of, of that we wouldn't have been able to be with her, you know, like that yeah. was a huge relief, um, which I thought yeah. a lot about. Um, and to see all of that going on for people, you know, I cannot, I just can't even imagine, you know. And then when I lost my job, 
my grief turned to that job, like and grieving that outlet and that contribution. You know, I instantly, like pretty soon after, got like very debilitating back pain, like all through the summer. And it was like brutal, like days when I just could not even stand up straight. Um, it still like goes on, but not nearly as bad as it was. But I definitely think that was like a physical manifestation of like just could not like it was just I was just holding it all there, you know. I mean, and then there's mm -hmm. like some book I read about, you know, like how all back pain is emotional and so I was just like trying to process all that. And you know, I I do these like half steps where I'd like reach out to someone about joining a grief group and then ignore their phone call every time they called. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, I have a book, you know, that I haven't opened. My wife is a therapist. I I don't see a therapist right now currently. And it's interesting with my siblings, like being separated and going through this experience with them. I'm grateful to have them, but we also mm -hmm. are very different people who kind of operate at different levels, you know, and mm -hmm. grief hits you at different times, you know? So my sister, I call these, uh, she does these like grief drive-bys, I call them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like I'm in the middle of something or doing something and there's like a text that comes through and she's like feeling it and in it and has a thought or memory or whatever. And, you know, so immediately I'm there with her, too. And I'm in that space. You know, I, I thought about asking, like, could you email me this and then I can choose to yeah. open it later. As yeah, a, like a subject line. of Right, like, right. Maybe when you're feeling this way. Right. Yeah. But I also know she needs some immediate response too. like she's reaching out because she needs to connect. So um, I get it. Yeah, the isolation. I feel like I have felt very alone. And it's hard for my wife. Like, you know, she tries and we talk. and But it's just, I don't even, you know, you don't even know what to, it's very hard. Like, you feel changed. Like, I do. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not who I was. The isolation on top of these, like, markers you hit right so there's like okay she died at the end of january her birthday's february 12th my sister's birthday's february 24th here comes mother my brother's or here comes mother's day here comes my brother's birthday here comes there always seems to be like always a month away another date of like something related to either her being here or not being here and uh yeah i don't know when that goes away you know um the anniversary of her death, we did a FaceTime. Uh, my sister and stepdad were at her grave and my brother was in Japan and I was here. So it was like, you know, 11 o'clock at night for him, 6 a.m. for me. Um, and then they were on the East Coast. But there had just been like this huge snowstorm. It was, it was like seven below. So they meet at the grave. I had sent this like bouquet that like cost me a lot of money. It turns out I was left out in the cold all night before. So it's like, she couldn't even bring it there. You know, they got to the grave. My sister dropped the phone and, you know, my brother and I are on, you know, like the FaceTime as well. So she drops the phone and immediately turns off. So, so it's just like this comical thing. Like it was like one, it was like, they were freezing cold. Like we're like, Oh, well, let's, let's stand around and say something. Or does someone want to read something? Or like, there's like no time for that. It was like, it was yeah. freezing cold yeah uh, here she is it was a calamity and i think like my brother and i were laughing hysterically and that was like great you know so like, there's some unexpected like levity levity mm -hmm. much needed levity you know yeah so timeline 
she dies, COVID, lost my job. Then the fires happened at the end of the summer out here. And uh, we don't have central air in our house. So it was uh, by the third day. I mean, I just could not breathe. And so we decided to drive to Chicago. Uh, very like COVID conscious at this time. I was like double glow. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was not, we looked insane, but like whatever we got there. And uh, <laughs> I have to say, like my wife was sleeping a lot through the trip and I was just driving on my own. And I think like, and I, I don't want to get meta here, but I listened to a lot of episodes of this podcast on that drive. And I have to say like that definitely helped a great deal. To hear what's similar and to hear what's different. Um, I think like listening to someone else's, you know, hardship and struggles with this is like a relief, you know, like from your own, like, it, you know, you can relate to it, but also it kind of lifts the weight a little bit. And I was like able to kind of, yeah, like definitely feel less isolation. So I appreciate mm -hmm. it. And I wanted to thank you for that. Oh, um, um, I think drawing has helped, like um, some of the drawings I've done, and I'm working mm -hmm. on kind of a larger piece about kind of a graphic memoir about all this. I don't know. It's just like the whole subject of grief is so interesting because especially this past year, you realize like how much we all have, how we carry it all the time, how it leaks out of us. Mm -hmm. in crazy ways you know when we don't talk it out or address it I definitely was not prepared for the like physical pain when she died she was so sick and there was like nothing left of her and there was relief you know that she wasn't suffering and yeah. you know there was like that part was like gone and and, mm -hmm. and that felt good like that felt like right but mm -hmm. um, now she's just like gone. And it's funny, I did this like just quick drawing uh, and it was like a line and it's like on one side, it's like life problems. And on the other side, it's like afterlife problems, <laughs> you know? And it was, I was telling Vivian, like, I'm so glad she doesn't have to deal with COVID and anxiety around that and worry and, you know, and she, and like, she doesn't have to deal with Donald Trump and like, <laughs> Yeah. election you know like all the issues and the you know all this paying bills like all this stuff and you know vivian said who knows like there may be afterlife problems too and i thought that was <laughs> like so brilliant i think for a while i was trying to create ways to keep her alive um she had this like ongoing argument with a stop sign at the end of her road um, where she hated it was a useless stop sign it was unnecessary it hadn't been there for years and then they put it in I hate the stupid stop sign so part of me like fantasized like of like stealing the stop sign and giving it to her but then I was like oh my god what if I steal it and then there's an accident that happens and someone's hurt because the stop sign wasn't there I was like the whole thing so I created a sticker uh, and it's a picture of her that in a in a like thought bubble that says i hate this stop sign and i have like farmed out the sticker to my friends all over the country and they put it on stop signs that they too don't agree with she also has like some of her sayings when you came in the door she'd always say wipe your feet 
So I made these like bracelets with like, you know, a little picture of her and a little pair of feet. And it says like, wipe your feet. Kind of shared that with friends and family. And I love that. It's like an integration into everyday things. Yeah. And it's kind of like a little subversion, you know, mm-hmm. you know, since she died, like every show <laughs> that we try to watch, you know, like new show that's come out that like the inciting incident is always like my dad has cancer and is dying or, you yeah. know, it's like every first episode or, you know, has someone who has cancer and yeah. So that, that was hard at first and I just like couldn't even watch it and then um that's gotten better i can kind of disassociate from that now though mm-hmm. i watched the movie beginners oh i love that movie oh my god watched it with my son and i was so he really liked it too which i wasn't sure if he would mm-hmm. um but yeah that just like threw me into a total like tailspin which i was not yeah. prepared for i'd seen it many times it also sounds like it was maybe a collision of both of your parents in a way yeah Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think of her a lot. I think of her. um, I think she probably would not be thrilled that I'm not working. (laughs) Um, As someone who like instilled a huge work ethic in us always um, and worked very hard always herself. It doesn't take much for me to like for something to just hit me about her and I'm surprised as time goes on and, you know, I'm taking antidepressants and everything like that still, like, I just like choke up like more than, uh, you know, I, I don't even, yeah. So then I think, oh, okay, I should just like sob and weep for 20 minutes and then that won't be there, you know, but it still keeps coming. It's like, (laughs) just this endless river. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Mary, you can follow her incredible artist Instagram at Drawing Daily USA. And I'll be putting some of Mary's drawings created specifically about grief on Patreon this month available for anyone to see. And if you want to support the podcast on Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. And again, next week I'll be uploading for my Patreons a segment that Mary and I recorded about Glee and about the death of Naya Rivera. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash or BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>